Chapter One of Characters of Shakespeare's Plays by William Hazlitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nemo. Preface To Charles Lamb, Esquire. This volume is inscribed as a mark of old friendship and lasting esteem by the author. It is observed by Mr. Pope that if ever any author deserved the name of an original it was shakespeare homer himself drew not his art so immediately from the fountains of nature it proceeded through egyptian strainers and channels and came to him not without some tincture of the learning or some cast of the models of those before him the poetry of shakespeare was inspiration indeed he is not so much an imitator as an instrument of nature and it is not so just to say that he speaks from her as that she speaks through him his characters are so much nature herself that it is a sort of injury to call them by so distant a name as copies of her those of other poets have a constant resemblance which shows that they received them from one another and were but multipliers of the same image each picture like a mock rainbow is but the reflection of a reflection but every single character in shakespeare is as much an individual as those in life itself it is as impossible to find any two alike and such as from their relation or affinity in any respect appear most to be twins will upon comparison be found remarkably distinct to this life and variety of character we must add the wonderful preservation of it which is such throughout his plays that had all the speeches been printed without the very names of the persons i believe one might have applied them with certainty to every speaker the object of the volume here offered to the public is to illustrate these remarks in a more particular manner by a reference to each play a gentleman of the name of mason the author of a treatise on ornamental gardening not mason the poet began a work of a similar kind about forty years ago but he only lived to finish a parallel between the characters of macbeth and richard the third which is an exceedingly ingenious piece of analytical criticism richardson's essays include but a few of shakespeare's principal characters the only work which seemed to supersede the necessity of an attempt like the present with schlegel's very admirable lectures on the drama which give by far the best account of the plays of shakespeare that has hitherto appeared the only circumstances in which it was thought not impossible to improve on the manner in which the german critic has executed this part of his design were in avoiding an appearance of mysticism in his style not very attractive to the english reader and in bringing illustrations from particular passages of the plays themselves of which schlegel's work from the extensiveness of his plan did not admit we will at the same time confess that some little jealousy of the character of the national understanding was not without its share in producing the following undertaking for we were piqued that it should be reserved for a foreign critic to give reasons for the faith which we english have in shakespeare certainly 
no writer among ourselves has shown either the same enthusiastic admiration of his genius or the same philosophical acuteness in pointing out his characteristic excellences as we have pretty well exhausted all we had to say upon this subject in the body of the work we shall here transcribe schlegel's general account of shakespeare which is in the following words Quote, never perhaps was there so comprehensive a talent for the delineation of character as shakespeare's it not only grasped the diversities of rank sex and age down to the dawnings of infancy not only do the king and the beggar the hero and the pickpocket the sage and the idiot speak and act with equal truth not only does he transport himself to distant ages and foreign nations and portray in the most accurate manner with only a few apparent violations of costume the spirit of the ancient romans of the french in their wars with the english of the english themselves during a great part of their history of the southern europeans in the serious part of many comedies the cultivated society of that time in the former rude and barbarous state of the north his human characters have not only such depth and precision that they cannot be arranged under classes and are inexhaustible even in conception no this prometheus not merely forms men he opens the gate of the magical world of spirits calls up the midnight ghost exhibits before us his witches admits their unhallowed mysteries peoples the air with sportive fairies and sylphs and these beings existing only in imagination possess such truth and consistency that even when deformed monsters like caliban he extorts the conviction that if there should be such beings they would so conduct themselves in a word as he carries with him the most fruitful and daring fancy into the kingdom of nature on the other hand he carries nature into the regions of fancy lying beyond the confines of reality we are lost in astonishment at seeing the extraordinary the wonderful and the unheard of in such intimate nearness if shakespeare deserves our admiration for his characters he is equally deserving of it for his exhibition of passion taking this word in its widest signification as including every mental condition every tone from indifference or familiar mirth to the wildest rage and despair he gives us the history of minds he lays open to us in a single word a whole series of preceding conditions his passions do not at first stand displayed to us in all their height as is the case with so many tragic poets who in the language of lessing are thorough masters of the legal style of love he paints in a most inimitable manner the gradual progress from the first origin he gives as lessing says a living picture of all the most minute and secret artifices by which a feeling steals into our souls of all the imperceptible advantages which it there gains of all the stratagems by which every other passion is made subservient to it till it becomes the sole tyrant of our desires and our aversions of all poets perhaps he alone 
has portrayed the mental diseases melancholy delirium lunacy with such inexpressible and in every respect definite truth that the physician may enrich his observations from them in the same manner as from real cases and yet johnson has objected to shakespeare that his pathos is not always natural and free from affectation there are it is true passages though comparatively speaking very few where his poetry exceeds the bounds of true dialogue where a too soaring imagination a too luxuriant wit rendered the complete dramatic forgetfulness of himself impossible with this exception the censure originates only in a fanciless way of thinking to which everything appears unnatural that does not suit its own tame insipidity hence an idea has been formed of simple natural pathos which consists in exclamations destitute of imagery in no wise elevated above everyday life but energetical passions electrify the whole of the mental powers and will consequently in highly favored natures express themselves in an ingenious and figurative manner it has been often remarked that indignation gives wit and as despair occasionally breaks out into laughter it may sometimes also give vent to itself in antithetical comparisons besides the rights of the poetical form have not been duly weighed shakespeare who was always sure of his object to move in a sufficiently powerful manner when he wished to do so has occasionally by indulging in a freer play purposely moderated the impressions when too painful and immediately introduced a musical alleviation of our sympathy he had not those rude ideas of his art which many moderns seem to have as if the poet like the clown in the proverb must strike twice on the same place an ancient rhetorician delivered a caution against dwelling too long on the excitation of pity for nothing he said dry so soon as tears and shakespeare acted conformably to this ingenious maxim without knowing it the objection that shakespeare wounds our feelings by the open display of the most disgusting moral odiousness harrows up the mind unmercifully and tortures even our senses by the exhibition of the most insupportable and hateful spectacles is one of much greater importance he has never in fact varnished over wild and bloodthirsty passions with a pleasing exterior never clothed crime and want of principle with a false show of greatness of soul and in that respect he is every way deserving of praise twice he has portrayed downright villains in the masterly way in which he has contrived to elude impressions of too painful a nature may be seen in iago and richard the third the constant reference to a petty and puny race must cripple the boldness of the poet fortunately for his art shakespeare lived in an age extremely susceptible of noble and tender impressions which had still enough of the firmness inherited from a vigorous olden time not to shrink back with dismay from every strong and violent picture we have lived to see tragedies of which the catastrophe consists in the swoon of an enamoured princess if shakespeare falls occasionally into the opposite extreme it is a noble error 
originating in the fullness of a gigantic strength and yet this tragical titan who storms the heavens and threatens to tear the world from off its hinges who more terrible than aeschylus makes our hair stand on end and congeals our blood with horror possessed at the same time the insinuating loveliness of the sweetest poetry he plays with love like a child and his songs are breathed out like melting sighs he unites in his genius the utmost elevation and the utmost depth and the most foreign and even apparently irreconcilable properties subsist in him peacefully together the world of spirits and nature have laid all their treasures at his feet in strength a demigod in profundity of view a prophet in all-seeing wisdom a protecting spirit of a higher order he lowers himself to mortals as if unconscious of his superiority and is as open and unassuming as a child shakespeare's comic talent is equally wonderful with that which he has shown in the pathetic and tragic it stands on an equal elevation and possesses equal extent and profundity all that i before wished was not to admit that the former preponderated he is highly inventive in comic situations and motives it will be hardly possible to show whence he has taken any of them whereas in the serious part of his drama he has generally laid hold of something already known his comic characters are equally true various and profound with his serious so little is he disposed to caricature that we may rather say many of his traits are almost too nice and delicate for the stage that they can only be properly seized by a great actor and fully understood by a very acute audience not only has he delineated many kinds of folly he has also contrived to exhibit mere stupidity in a most diverting and entertaining manner End quote. volume two page one forty five we have the rather availed ourselves of this testimony of a foreign critic in behalf of shakespeare because our own countryman dr johnson has not been so favourable to him it may be said of shakespeare that those who are not for him are against him for indifference is here the height of injustice we may sometimes in order to do a great right do a little wrong an overstrained enthusiasm is more pardonable with respect to shakespeare than the want of it for our admiration cannot easily surpass his genius we have a high respect for dr johnson's character and understanding mixed with something like personal attachment but he was neither a poet nor a judge of poetry he might in one sense be a judge of poetry as it falls within the limits and rules of prose but not as it is poetry least of all was he qualified to be a judge of shakespeare who alone is high fantastical let those who have a prejudice against johnson read boswell's life of him as those whom he has prejudiced against shakespeare should read his irene we do not say that a man to be a critic must necessarily be a poet but to be a good critic he ought not to be a bad poet such poetry as a man deliberately writes such and such only will he like 
dr johnson's preface to his edition of shakespeare looks like a laborious attempt to bury the characteristic merits of his author under a load of cumbrous phraseology and to weigh his excellences and defects in equal scales stuffed full of swelling figures and sonorous epithets nor could it well be otherwise dr johnson's general powers of reasoning overlaid his critical susceptibility all his ideas were cast in a given mould in a set form they were made out by rule and system by climax inference and antithesis shakespeare's were the reverse johnson's understanding dealt only in round numbers the fractions were lost upon him he reduced everything to the common standard of conventional propriety and the most exquisite refinement or sublimity produced an effect on his mind only as they could be translated into the language of measured prose to him an excess of beauty was a fault for it appeared to him like an excrescence and his imagination was dazzled by the blaze of light his writings neither shone with the beams of native genius nor reflected them the shifting shapes of fancy the rainbow hues of things made no impression on him he seized only on the permanent and tangible he had no idea of natural objects but such as he could measure with a two-foot rule or tell upon ten fingers he judged of human nature in the same way by mood and figure he saw only the definite the positive and the practical the average forms of things not their striking differences their classes not their degrees he was a man of strong common sense and practical wisdom rather than of genius or feeling he retained the regular habitual impressions of actual objects but he could not follow the rapid flights of fancy or the strong movements of passion that is he was to the poet what the painter of still life is to the painter of history common sense sympathizes with the impressions of things on ordinary minds in ordinary circumstances genius catches the glancing combinations presented to the eye of fancy under the influence of passion it is the province of the didactic reasoner to take cognizances of those results of human nature which are constantly repeated and always the same which follow one another in regular succession which are acted upon by large classes of men and embodied in received customs laws language and institutions and it was in arranging comparing and arguing on these kinds of general results that johnson's excellence lay but he could not quit his hold on the commonplace and mechanical and apply the general rule to the particular exception or show how the nature of man was modified by the workings of passion or the infinite fluctuations of thought and accident hence he could judge neither the heights nor depths of poetry nor is this all for being conscious of great powers in himself and those powers of an adverse tendency to those of his author he would be for setting up a foreign jurisdiction over poetry and making criticism a kind of procrustes bed of genius where he might cut down imagination to matter of fact regulate the passions according to reason and translate the whole into logical diagrams and rhetorical declamation thus he says of shakespeare's characters in contradiction to what pope had observed and to what everyone else feels that each character is a species 
instead of being an individual he in fact found the general species or didactic form in shakespeare's characters which was all he sought or cared for he did not find the individual traits or the dramatic distinctions which shakespeare has engrafted on this general nature because he felt no interest in them shakespeare's bold and happy flights of imagination were equally thrown away upon our author he was not only without any particular fineness of organic sensibility alive to all the mighty world of ear and eye which is necessary to the painter or musician but without the intenseness of passion which seeking to exaggerate whatever excites the feelings of pleasures or power in the mind and moulding the impressions of natural objects according to the impulses of imagination produces a genius and a taste for poetry according to dr johnson a mountain is sublime or a rose is beautiful for that their name and definition imply but he would no more be able to give the description of dover cliff and lear or the description of flowers in the winter's tale than to describe the objects of a sixth sense nor do we think he would have any very profound feeling of the beauty of the passages here referred to a stately commonplace such as congreve's description of a rune in the morning bride would have answered johnson's purpose just as well or better than the first and an indiscriminate profusion of scents and hues would have interfered less with the ordinary routine of his imagination than perdita's lines which seem enamoured of their own sweetness daffodils that come before the swallow dares and take the winds of march with beauty violets dim but sweeter than the lids of juno's eyes or cytherea's breath no one who does not feel the passion which these objects inspire can go along with the imagination which seeks to express that passion and the uneasy sense of delight accompanying it by something still more beautiful and no one can feel this passionate love of nature without quick natural sensibility to a mere literal and formal apprehension the inimitably characteristic epithet violets dim must seem to imply a defect rather than a beauty and to any one not feeling the full force of that epithet which suggests an image like the sleepy eye of love the allusion to the lids of juno's eyes must appear extravagant and unmeaning shakespeare's fancy lent words and images to the most refined sensibility to nature struggling for expression his descriptions are identical with the things themselves seen through the fine medium of passion strip them of that connection and try them by ordinary conceptions and ordinary rules and they are as grotesque and barbarous as you please by thus lowering shakespeare's genius to the standard of commonplace invention it was easy to show that his faults were as great as his beauties for the excellence which consists merely in a conformity to rule is counterbalanced by the technical violation of them another circumstance which led to dr johnson's indiscriminate praise or censure of shakespeare is the very structure of his style johnson wrote a kind of rhyming prose in which he was as much compelled to finish the different clauses of his sentences 
and to balance one period against another as the writer of heroic verses to keep lines of ten syllables with similar terminations he no sooner acknowledges the merits of his author in one line than the periodical revolution in his style carries the weight of his opinion completely over to the side of objection thus keeping up a perpetual alternation of perfections and absurdities we do not otherwise know how to account for such assertions as the following quote, in his tragic scenes there is always something wanting but his comedy often surpasses expectation or desire his comedy pleases by the thoughts and the language and his tragedy for the greater part by incident and action his tragedy seems to be skill his comedy to be instinct End quote. yet after saying that his tragedy was skill he affirms in the next page quote, his declamations or set speeches are commonly cold and weak for his power was the power of nature when he endeavoured like other tragic writers to catch opportunities of amplification and instead of inquiring what the occasion demanded to show how much his stores of knowledge could supply he seldom escapes without the pity or resentment of his reader poor shakespeare between the charges here brought against him of want of nature in the first instance and of want of skill in the second he could hardly escape being condemned and again quote, but the admirers of this great poet have most reason to complain when he approaches nearest to his highest excellence and seems fully resolved to sink them in dejection or mollify them with tender emotions by the fall of greatness the danger of innocence or the crosses of love what he does best he soon ceases to do he no sooner begins to move than he counteracts himself and terror and pity as they are rising in the mind are checked and blasted by a sudden frigidity in all of this our critic seems more bent on maintaining the equilibrium of his style than the consistency or truth of his opinions if dr johnson's opinion was right the following observations on shakespeare's plays must be greatly exaggerated if not ridiculous if he was wrong what has been said may perhaps account for his being so without detracting from his ability and judgment in other things it is proper to add that the account of the midsummer night's dream has appeared in another work april fifteenth eighteen seventeen end of preface